Wow. You can be seated, please. It is a, well, first, Bishop, thank you, and Lady Carmen and the leadership. Thank you for asking me and allowing me to speak this morning. It's, a, it's an honor to be here on Father's Day to be able to, by God's grace, deliver the Word of God. As Bishop mentioned, as a fourth generation PT man and family man, it's a bit daunting. I've had my Uncle Earl, who's here, who's preached, not at this pulpit, but at PT North. I know my grandmother is looking down at me and is, is so proud, and uncles, and so the, the, the lineage again, this is, this is more than me, this is, this is God's work through me, so I just thank God, just want to thank God for that. I want to recognize my mom, who's here, as Bishop mentioned, and also my niece, daughter, music, and my cousins and brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I also want to recognize my wife, Tiffany. That's right, that's right, that's right, give it up, give it up. She is one of God's many gifts to me. And so some of us know our story. Eight years ago, Tiffany walked into PT, and really since then, we met, and we were married less, a little over a year after that, but instantaneously it was clear that God was doing something special to us, through us. And I didn't realize, I thought this was just a gift to me, but it really was a ministry that we were starting in our lives and through our marriage. So I just wanted to thank you, honey. I didn't know what God was going to do this morning, so I said, worst comes to worst, I'm going to preach to you, and whatever happens, happens. So I'm, I'm right here. I'm sorry if I don't look left or right, but I'm here, right? I'm, I'm here. We're, we're here together. And, and one of the great things that we share in our walk is our children and our love for our children. We wake up in the morning, and we look at each other, and, and Charlie might be crying, and Noah might be crying, or... Something's happening with music, but we look at each other and we are so blessed and so full of the family we have. And, you know, most parents love their children, but the reason why we love our children is because we had to work so hard to have the family we have. And the fruit, which is our children, is really not the, the product of our own hands. This was the product of God. And, and uh, Tiffany has shared our story at the women's retreat and in other venues, but both of our children are truly miracles from God. When we first started our relationship early on and we met and we were, fell in love right away. And when you fall in love right away, you want to try to get everything out. You want to figure out, you know, this is my past and my future. And one of the challenging things right from the beginning was the challenge that we knew we were going to face about having children. And essentially, the, the facts, the word in reality that people spoke over, over us in terms of the doctors and other people were that you guys should really think about adoption because having a biological child was likely not in the cards. And, you know, I wasn't ready for that. And I, and I said to myself, I said, God, if you made me wait 32 years to find this woman, then you were going to figure it out. And we just both walked together in faith. So when, we, when I talk about my son Noah, he is really a miracle. And also my daughter, Charlie. We adopted her, and we've had her in our hands since the day she was born. 
And I won't get into the details, but God protected her and kept her so that she would be there for us. So both of our children are really gifts from God, and we thank, for, we thank God for that. And so when I thought about Father's Day, I really was focusing on my relationship with my father, and I'll get into that, but also my relationship with my children and the joy that was brought to me. But thank God for, for, for men and friends that are closer than a brother, and specifically Deacon Troy. He reminded me that every Father's Day is a day to rejoice because of the Heavenly Father. And so no matter what your earthly father or mother or family is like, I give thanks because the, the Heavenly Father, Abba Father, is worthy of our praise and all honor today. Amen. Yes, Lord. So you can turn to the next slide, please. So this is a picture of our family. And I'm just remembering Pastor Chandler was here and he was speaking. And there were times in our journey where we had no children and there was words spoken over us about this big family we would have. And it almost seemed like it was mocking us. But God has been so faithful and he has brought us through. So Father's Day, for many, like Christmas, can be bittersweet. For some people, Christmas is the day where it's all about presents and families and sharing many memories. But for me, Father's Day was oftentimes reflection about the failures of my father, the things that my father didn't do for us and our family. And, you know, God protected me because I had a lineage to my grandmother's side of, of ministers and prayerful men and prayerful women that had brought me through. But the devil has a way of blocking some of the blessings and focusing you on the things that you don't have, the things, the, the shortcomings. So when I was preparing, I was really thinking, you know, that I, I had more of a, a somber message, one, and, 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 and really tor uh, uh, working through the issues with my father. And really the last two years, it's really been this issue of me trying to figure out why my father did certain things, why my mother and father, uh, you know, marriage didn't work. And, and there were years where I blamed myself, and I, I got through that, and I realized it wasn't my fault. But then I also felt, that, well, you know, I'm from him. I'm his DNA. And the devil had ways of looking at things that would happen in my life, and he would say, see, you're just like your daddy. And that, that word in my spirit uh, really tormented me. And I figured, okay, well, I'm going to do the opposite of my father. I'm going to be in my kid's life so much. You know, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm on the bike with them. I'm spending so much time with them. I'm doing all these things with my own effort. But yet, the, 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 the pain, the brokenness was still right there. And I'd come to church and usher with, a, with this great face and look at the pictures of our family, but I still couldn't shake it. And in the weeks preparing for this, God has done so much through me and has revealed so much that I'm going to share today. That, that today, to me, this is not even the fruit. The fruit is going to last for, for years. And I believe that my destiny in my life as a man and as a father is changed forever because Bishop asked me to preach today. Yeah. Spending time in the Word. Amen. In the name of Jesus. So, yes. so you know, next slide, please. All right. So we're going to get into the Word. So God the Father is really the first father. And so, as I said previously, when you think about Father's Day, we should really be thinking about the Father in heaven. But God is the creator of all. He is the source, the founder, the teacher. So as I was reading scriptures and looking at different books to read in order to get an idea of what I wanted to talk about on Father's Day, there was a book by uh, Dr. Miles Monroe called The Fatherhood Principle, God's Design and Destiny for Every Man. 
And if you know Dr. Miles Monroe, he has a series of books all about men and purpose, lots of different books. And my mom, because she keeps a library everywhere she goes, over the years, I would pick up a book and read a couple chapters and I'd say, wow, this is, this is really good, but somehow I'd get distracted. But again, you know, and this was, was God, this book came to me and I started to read it and digest it. And so one of the good things about the book is they go through the fundamental principles about what God says about being a godly father. And being a godly father is not just about being a father to your biological children. It's broader than that. God pulls people into your life for covering. And sometimes they're not even children. Sometimes they may be adults, but the idea and the principles of fatherhood is what God requires and is designed every man to be. So we're going to just break it down. So as I said, the first father in the Old Testament was Abba the father. And that was that, 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 that God was the father to us all. And in the New Testament in the Greek, the word father was also known as pater. And God is the father because he created all and whatever comes out of him is he created. And we go to the next slide. So in Colossians, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him we for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether whether it be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So God is the creator of all things in the heavens. He is the creator, he is the father, and man is made in his image. When we look for our identity, when we look for how we should behave, how we should be with our children, with our brothers in our community, we should look to the manual. When you say, how does something work? You look to its creator. So when we look at ourselves in our walk, we should look to the creator. So when we want to figure out the blueprint, the roadmap for our lives, we should be looking to the word of God, but we should also be looking in our devotional time and our private time to God for everything. Not just the spiritual things, not just the holy things, but everything. God is there. He is our creator. So there should be no questions. And for years, I was tormented by looking at my father, and today I know that I'm looking to my creator. Amen. But if it was that simple, we would have our Bibles at home, we would read it, we wouldn't need to even come to church because we could say, well, here's the manual, I'll follow it, and we'll all walk on to heaven, right? But that's not what happens. So let's not be too holy, and let's look at a real-world application. So I'm going to talk about me now. So Tiffany and I are, are traveling to an, an event, and you know, usually maybe we're running a little bit late, but we want to get there on time. So we get in the car, and what do we all do, right? We pull out the GPS, we punch in the directions, right? And the GPS is connected to a satellite, which is connected to another satellite, which is connected to all of our phones, which is connected to the weather, the traffic, all this information right here to tell us the direction to get to. So we should listen to the GPS because it knows the right way to go. But not me, right? I'm from Cambridge, and when it tells me to get to 93 and it gives me the directions, I'm like, I, I don't really know. You say go left, but I know a shortcut. If I go right and cut over and run the light, I'll make it there on time. That's just me, right? So not the satellites, not all the data, but me. So, and Tiffany's like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I said, well, come on, look, I, I know what I'm doing. We're running late, right? And I don't listen to the good thing God has given me, and I want to go my way. So I don't go with the GPS. I go my way. And, of course, we hit some traffic, right? And then there's silence in the car, 
She's looking at me, and I'm looking ahead, right? And you don't know where the other traffic was, right? So it's illogical, right? And in that instance, we still get to our destination. But what is it? The timing is off, right? So possibly in life, when we don't listen to God's blueprint, God's manual, we still get someplace, but we don't get there necessarily on the timing. And the thing about God's timing, we never know how many divine connections that we may have missed, we have made de- delayed because we choose. Now, why do I choose that? I don't want to get there late. I don't want to be frustrated, but my pride, my own way. I want to follow God. I want to follow the blueprint, but I want to do it my way. And that is also part of something that I have been dealing with, that I recognize if I really want to be God, that the best that God wants me to be, it's got to be his way, but it also comes with a relationship. And this Abba Father on Father's Day, I feel like through my study and preparation, I have been reignited with the idea that God has a perfect plan, an efficient plan for me, that I need to spend time in the Word, time in my devotions, but then I just need to look to Him, and He is going to download what I need to make it to His perfect place on time. Amen. So, uh, a second example, and any engineers in the room, uh, this is not for you. So if you're engineers, this is not you. They're talking about me. So another example that struck to my spirit was um, assembling things. So I have a five-year-old, and when you get these toys, the old days it was three pieces and some paint, and you were done. Noah has these toys that are like 100 pieces, right? So he says, Daddy, Daddy, you know, here's my toy. Let's put it together quickly, right, and we'll play. And I'm like, oh, Lord, okay. So, you know, it would make sense that I would open the package look at the directions, you know, what engineer would do. You break open the package, you lay out the 100 pieces, you check to make sure there actually are 100 pieces, you look at the manual, you might fold up the box, recycle it, and then go. Not me, right? I look at the, I look at the toy, and I tell Noah, get him all excited. I open the package. I generally make sure all the big pieces are there. And of course, I look at the manual. And you got to look at number one, because number one, it gets you going. But by number three, I'm like, I got this, right? So I'm moving. And so I go from number three, four, or five to step 20. And number 20 is just not working, right? I don't think, oh, well, I didn't read the direction, so I should start back at one. No. I look at the thing, and I try to twist it, and I say, oh, this thing was made in Taiwan. It must be cheap. It's broken, right? <laughs> not me, but there's something wrong with the toy. Again, right? Because somehow I want to follow the directions a little bit, but then I want to do me because I know. I want to look at the end product and I say, oh, there it is. I'll get there. And the same way the scripture lays out the steps we need to live a godly life, to be a godly father, human nature, at least for me, says, let's follow, but then let's stop short. And if we knew that we were going to mess it up, we wouldn't. But this is not the first time. I've had my son for five years and I do it every Christmas, right? It's, It's the same thing. So I'm realizing that this is not a one-time thing where someone says, here's God's manual for you, and you run off, that we need to continually be reminded, and and that's what the Holy Spirit does. And sometimes you learn that painfully. If you come to our house, and we're moving, but if you come to our house now, everything that I've put together is like just a little off, right? You know, it's like the TV, and Tiffany's laughing, right? Because she's like, how'd it go? And I'm like, oh, it's kind of good, you know, and the, the man tells this. So in the new house, I'm not putting anything together. But... I know that if I follow the manual, it will work out well. Next slide, please. 
So we're talking now about the uh, principle of fatherhood. And um, one of the good things that Dr. Miles Monroe does is he works through uh, the definition of things before he gives you the meat. And so uh, a working definition of the principle of fatherhood is, is defined as a fundamental law that governs the function or behavior of a thing. So, and also, so what is fundamental? Fundamental is defined as forming a necessary base or core or of central importance. And so that's principle. And father is defined as a man in relation to his children. And hood is a hood. It covers your head, not deep. So the principle of fatherhood can be defined as a central core or law that governs the behaviors and qualities of a father. So um, in order to understand and to be a good and godly father, you must know God's principles. And so when we think about God as the father, as Abba Father in relation to us, we think about, and there, there are two primary functions I want to cover today in terms of God and being a father to us as mankind. And the first one I covered, creation. God is the father because he, is, he created all. All the heavens, all the earth. God is the source of everything. God, we can do nothing without God. God created us in his image, so that means God is the source of everything. So when we look for anything we want to do, we can look to God. The second piece, and I think everybody knows this, but this really struck me and it gave me a lot of joy and a lot of confidence as a godly father, or in my walk to be a godly father, is that God is the source of our redemption. God is also the father through redemption and reconciliation through his son, Jesus. And that when Jesus came as a blameless and sinless man and sacrificed himself on the cross, he took us from our separated position in sin and then reconciled us with, father, with the Father as his son. And so I knew that, but I said, well, well when, when we were sinning before Jesus came, we were actually outside of the covenant. So God created us in his image, but then we were no longer his children for that time until Jesus came. And so in John 20, verse 17, uh, next slide, please, in the New Living Translation, Jesus is out of the tomb, and one of the first persons he sees is Mary Magdalene. And he says, don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them I, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This was Jesus saying that we were no longer separated, that you are my brothers, you are my kin, we are family again. And it's not just my God, but it's your God. This was Jesus saying again that we are children, that through his sacrifice, that through his blood, that we our, our sin was redeemed and that we are reconciled with the Father. And isn't that good news? That through Jesus' sacrifice, that we are his children again. And I, I didn't recognize, but I said, if he didn't do that, where would we be? Life is hard enough with Jesus, but separated by sin. So I, I said, I thank you, God, because you know what? That is, what better gift can a father give you than to bring you back into the fold? to have life ever after. So I thought that was an amazing uh, testimony and that really struck me. I wanna pivot a little bit and talk about inheritance because as an earthly father, that is something that uh, a lot of us fathers think about. I'm 40 years old now and I, I guess I'm in that middle of the road, hopefully I'll live to 80 and beyond, but I'm beginning to think about not just Noah, but Noah's children. 
And I can't say that I've come up with this idea. My grandmother was always talking about how she was ready to go, that she left, she prepared a way for the rest of us. But always think about the one that comes after you. And so I said, okay, you know, an inheritance makes sense. And I was thinking about financial inheritance. And I said, you know, what is that? People, you typically think about assets or money or life insurance or these things. And we think about these things because they give us a comfort. I'm not going to have to worry about my children or my children's children because I have this thing. And I said, okay, that made sense. And I think, well, well God, you know, the truth is not everybody's going to have an inheritance or, or a meaningful inheritance in the world's eyes to leave to their children's children. And then as I was looking at the news, I was realizing, I was seeing um, Kate Spade, who was a famous designer who had, had committed suicide, and Anthony Bourdain. And I realized, I said, they had all the money and the fame in the world, and yet they had nothing. They took their own lives, right? And so I said, you know, as much as we think worldly possessions are the thing that makes us confident in our future, those things can go like that. Or your children's children might even think, thanks, thanks Grandpa Sean, but I don't care about that. I'm miserable. So I realized, I said, it's not the earthly inheritance. I was also thinking about especially with uh, the, the way the world is turning, money. We think the U.S. dollar is so strong. We don't know what the future is going to hold. Real estate can come and can go. So I thought as a father, as a, as a godly father, what is the greatest inheritance that we can give our children? And that is knowing the love of the father, right? The father's love will keep us when we are by ourselves. That if my grandchildren know the Father, they have a relationship with Him, they will be rich. They will never be alone, right? And they will have eternal life. So in terms of inheritance, throw the money out the window. It's not bad to have those things, but that should not be what we're resting in our security. It has to be the relationship of, with the Father and the love of the Father. Amen? Amen. Next slide, please. Actually, go to the next slide. Oh, one back. Can you go back? Okay, so God's purpose for fathers, and I, there's, and I was doing some reading uh, on different uh, books and in the Bible. There are lots of good Christian books that say seven steps of a, of a heavenly father and five things that every father, godly father should know. And so I tried to summarize those, right, because we only have, you know, three hours here. Is that what I have up here? Uh, we only have so often, and, and also I understand that we wanted to kind of consolidate. So... God's purpose for fathers, one, is that God calls fathers to be a provider. God calls fathers to be a, a, a resource. So if God is the source, then fathers are to be the resource. We are supposed to go to the father for the source of our confidence, for our finances, for how to train our children, and then be a resource to our family. So when our family comes to us with the issues of life, we are supposed to absorb those, but not just give you back what I think. I'm supposed to go to the source and then be a resource to my family. In Philippians 4.19, it says, in the Passion Translation, I am convinced that my God will fully satisfy every need I have, or that God will supply all my needs. And as a, as a father, isn't that good news? That we don't have to worry that if I lose my job, as Elder Roy was talking about, I don't have a job, that I can go to the Father and he will supply all my needs not in my way, but according to his riches and glory. Amen. And the second thing is God calls us to be a protector of our family. And in protector, you can say a sustainer, a nurturer, or a nourisher. And uh, the sustainer part, uh, I, 
kind of stuck out to me as I was reading the scriptures. And the sustainer really means that whatever you produce, whatever God produces, he will sustain. So God produced through Bishop and through this church two, two buildings. And these buildings cost a lot of money. But we have the confidence that if God produced this, if it was his work, that he will sustain it. So men and fathers, if you are producing children, then it's your responsibility to sustain those t- children. And I'm going to leave it at that. And then also the third is a teacher and a discipliner. And this uh, really hit home for me. And In Hebrews 12, 3, they say, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And so God has placed parents, he has placed fathers in the, with the responsibility of disciplining his children. But in this passage, I think the order of this is very important. So it says, my son, do not despise the chastening. Chastening in the Greek means instruction. And so this is a, this is a, a scripture that's talking about discipline, but they start off with instruction. And what the Holy Spirit said to me was that if you are disciplining your children, but without instruction, then it's just punishment. And the whole idea about fatherhood is, the principle of fatherhood is understanding the fundamental laws. So if your children doesn't understand the fundamental reason why they're being punished, then all they're doing is understanding that you are beating them. And when they're outside of your covering, what are they gonna do? They're not gonna know the reasons why. They're gonna know what it means to be punished, but they will make up their own way. So I felt that, and I think that someone needed to hear this, that the instruction is the key to discipline. And some parents will mistake obedience for understanding, and they're not the same thing. That it's the instruction that will keep them on the path. We talk about the rod of correction, and I'm not gonna go into that, but I believe, though, instruction is the key to lasting change. And the next next example I wanted to talk about in terms of inheritance There are things that we inherit from our parents that are intentional. We talked about money and obviously, most importantly, uh, the gifts from the father. But there are also things that we inherit just by being around somebody. If your child is around you, they pick up things. And some of those things, we hope they're all positive. We want to to give ourselves the positive stuff, but there are other things that we do that they see as well. And I wanted to use the example of Muhammad Ali. And so some of, from some of you millennials, you might remember uh, Mike Tyson, right? He was good at knocking people out, right? And that's all right if you like boxing. But Muhammad Ali was even more significant because in addition to being a boxer, he was also a social activist. This was the 60s, this was Vietnam. There were things that were happening in, in certain communities, in African-American communities, and he became a symbol of people fighting back, of standing up to what were unjust laws. And Muhammad Ali had uh, nine children, but his eighth one was a daughter, and it was Layla Ali, and you see a picture of her, right? So she became a boxer, and from what I understood, Muhammad Ali did not encourage her to box. He didn't want her to box, but yet she inherited and watched her father, and she actually was undefeated. She held, uh, she held championships in several different weight classes. She never lost throughout her career, and so... This was an example, and one of the things that when I was reading about it, and I actually watched some of her fights on YouTube, and, I, and the girl could, could throw some, some blows, 
But one of the things that, I, that, I, that struck me was one of the trainers said she had her father's intensity. That, you know, she was obviously a good athlete, but she wasn't the best athlete. But she had her father's intensity and commitment to training. And that was one of the things that, that the, the, her trainer said that he, she inherited from her father, even though he did not want her to box. And in PT, we have our own heavyweight champion of worship, right? Next slide, please. We have our own Bishop Brian Green heavyweight championship of worship, right? And we also have his two daughters, Jessica and Vanessa. Now, if you know Bishop, you know he's competitive, right? He wants to win. And, you know, Bishop, two buildings, a growing congregation, you'd say, well, you know, Bishop, you can, you can relax. You're doing well. You're winning. But you know, Bishop, he's never satisfied. Sometimes you see him, he looks so tired, but that is in him. He is going to push. He wants to beat the devil. And when he beats the devil, he wants to stomp on the devil's feet, right? And then once he does that, he wants to go plant another church. Intensity. He is not satisfied with enough. As long as he is Bishop, he is going to continue to try to win. And that spirit of intentionality, of continuing to push, you can see in his daughters, from my perspective. And when you see Jessica up here worshiping, you know, you see this look on her face, and I see it with Bishop. It's this intentionality. She is going for the praise. She is going for the worship. She is going for it. And the same with Vanessa. You see Vanessa doing liturgical dance, and even though it's usually quiet, soft music, you look at her face, and you know she is worshiping. She is giving everything she has. She could be sick. She could be going through it. But again, from her, their father, they get this spirit of we are going to push. They may not be competitive in that same way, but they've inherited that spirit of I am going to give my all. I'm going to leave it all on the court, on the field, to give to God. Now, they would be Christian. They're, they're preacher's kids, so they were going to be Christians no matter what. But, I mean, just be real, right? They, they, you know, and it wasn't just Bishop. They have Sissy, and they have a lineage on both sides. But I do believe the intensity, the, the commitment to going for it and the worshiping is something that they get from their father. So I want to tell you a story, and then I'm going to close. Um, back in uh, 2012, over on Harvard Street, there was uh, a lot of land, uh, 10,000 square feet. And if you guys know Izzy's on Harvard Street, Izzy's was a sub shop. You go a little further down, there's a playground, and then there was a parking lot. And so this was a parking lot that back... 20 years ago, was given to the community. And all the development you see in Kendall Square oftentimes came in exchange for things. And so one of the deals that was brokered 20 years ago was that you're going to build some big biotech building, and we're going to give the community some land and a million dollars for scholarships. And um, what happened was the scholarship money never made it to the community, and the land just sat there. And this became a source of community shame and anger. So much so that the neighbors in the community went to the city manager and said, we want you to investigate. And these were individual folks, like you guys. And they said, something wrong was happening here. The money never made it, and we have broken promises dealing with this land. And we want you to investigate them and possibly prosecute them. And um, they actually did investigate, but there really wasn't enough there to, to do that. So they, uh, the land sat there, and as people walked by, it was the, the, the message in the community was something bad happened there. And uh, in 2012, my now good friend and business partner, he, and I he wasn't my good friend then, but he called me up and he said, Sean, you do, you, you do zoning and development. Why don't we go build some housing there? And there's a picture of the lot there. 
and you can see it was an empty lot with weeds overgrown. And I said, it is toxic. I said, we get involved, that's going to come back on us. Let's be careful. That land might be cursed. And he said, why? And I told him, and I said, bad things happen there. People have a history, and this was before I even got involved. And I said, we get involved, this could also happen to us. But something in my spirit said, let's go at least ask. You know, you can ask and figure out. So we went to the city manager, and, and to fast forward, we were able to get approval to build 20 units of family housing, 100% affordable, right, to be able to rebrand and to re rename that lot for the community. And the next slide. So if you drive down Harvard Street now, past Izzy's, you will see this, and it's called Port Landing. And the reason why it was called Port Landing really quickly is that in Cambridge, uh, every area has a name. This is actually Area 5. There are 13 neighborhoods, and they all had just a number. Over the years, no one calls this Area 5. It was rebranded as Cambridgeport. So every other neighborhood in Cambridge was rebranded, but Area 4 stayed Area 4 for a very long time. And Area 4 has the largest concentration of affordable housing and has two projects there. And historically, it was one of the poor neighborhoods in Cambridge. There's, there's no poor neighborhood in Cambridge anymore, right? I mean, let's just be real. But historically, it was. So the attention was focused on these other parts, but no one had taken the time to rebrand it. And so in the last two years, it was named uh, the Port. And so this was the first building um, that was called Port Landing. But if anyone knows about development, you would know before you can build up, you have to dig down. And if you go to the next slide. So, excuse me, stay right there. So this is a picture of the groundbreaking. If you can see it, there's a picture of Bishop. There is myself. There's the, the former mayor, Denise Simmons, and my business partner, Jason Korb. And this was a big moment. We had people from the governor's office, mayor, state reps, everyone was there. And I asked Bishop to give a blessing. And I said, well, Bishop, you know, he's a, well, he wasn't a police uh, a super captain then, but he knew how to do these things. So I said, I'm not going to tell Bishop what to say in a blessing. Give a blessing. So we had the ceremony, and give, give, Bishop gives a blessing. And from the city's perspective, he did everything but give communion, right? They were saying, <laughs> Bishop came, and, they, and I don't know if I ever told you this, you know, he said, someone said, he said Jesus 13 times, right? <laughs> My gosh, this is a blessing. So there were some people in the city, but the folks from the state, they, you know, because they said, look, this is, this is community, this is a church in the community, it was no problem. And I knew that it, it might not go so well, but I said, what they don't understand is that if this land is cursed, if this land is toxic, I don't want to build a building and have people live in a building that has a curse unless there's a blessing over that that could reset, that could restart the identity for this land. So Bishop, what you did that day, I believe changed the trajectory, not just of the land, but the people who live in that building. But also, as part of building this building, and go to the next slide, we had to dig a foundation. So you see the trees in the back? That's about 15 feet down of soil that we had to remove. And the soil, not, not spiritually, but actually was toxic. There was lead and other things in that land that we had to remove. And I was, I was, as I was preparing to give this message, one of the principles that came to me through reading scripture and to also reading Dr. M Miles Monroe's book was that fathers are called to be the foundation of our family, right? So what about a foundation? When you see a great building, no one walks up to a building and says, look at that foundation. Ooh, it's strong, right? 
You say there's some bricks, maybe they dressed it up, but you look at the windows, you look at the roof, you look at the paint. No one looks at the foundation. And here's a quote that I thought was interesting. A godly father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, unappreciated heroes in all, in all humanity. Now, I like heroes. That was good, right? But I said, unsung, unpraised, unappreciated. And I thought about that in terms of a foundation. And I said, we're called to be the foundation. So if, and, and, and the foundation has to carry the weight of the family. And we know in our families, stuff happens. People lose jobs. People, you know, death, sickness in families. Some people have to take care of grandparents and have them move in. So that as godly fathers, we are called to be this foundation that is really below grade. And we are called to bear the weight. And if you have a broken window or a leaky roof, you can still live in the place and you might fix it up, but you're still going to occupy it. But if someone tells you the foundation of that building is bad, you're getting out right away. You will abandon that building because if the foundation is weak, the building can collapse on itself. So I said, okay, we're called to be the foundation and we can't have cracks. And then I got nervous. I said, wait a minute, I have to bear the weight of my family, but you know, we all have broken lives, right? None of us comes perfect. And even though our message is restoring broken lives, it's not just a one-time thing and then we run off into the sunset. We continually have to use each other in community to fix those cracks as they come. So yes, we're gonna have cracks. And I said, well, God, you've put all this weight on our shoulders. We are the foundation of our families. But then what is the foundation on? And this is when I looked at that Jesus is the cornerstone, right? That our foundation is on the word of Jesus. So that even though we have our foundation, and as men, we want to be strong, right? We want to be macho. And another thing the Holy Spirit said to me was, you know, uh, the Bible calls us to be the lead and the heads of our family. But even though you're the head, you are the foundation, right? So that the foundation is not saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the strong one. The foundation is doing it in quiet. The foundation is being strong and, and being recognizing because it doesn't have time to get noticed. It has time to be there and to rely on God. Amen. And so that as the foundation of our families, we need to make sure that we maintain that God, Jesus is girding us, that we have the foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone in our lives, and that we need to continually renew to make sure as the foundation that Jesus is the center of everything we do. And I'm almost done. So one of the other, and this is profound, and I share this with Tiffany this morning, and it, I'm, I'm going to be working through this for however long. Uh, I mentioned the relationship with my father, and really the last two years I have been really struggling with why he was the man he was, making sure I'm not like him. And, you know, my, my, my dad it was, it was an attorney, and growing up, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I said, oh, he, he didn't like that. I don't want to be an attorney. I'm an attorney, right? And, but, you know, and it's funny, but it's like those things mess with my head. I said, what other things that am I running from that I'm, I'm, I'm actually aiming towards? And the devil was planting these in, you know, being an attorney is a good thing, right? It's a profession. It's a providing my family. But I began to question. I said, am I going down the same well-intended path that he was going over to possibly end up like him? So my dad dealt with depression throughout his life. He self-medicated for years with alcohol and other drugs. And most importantly, he was tortured by the things of life. Am I making enough money? 
Do I have community esteem? You know, am I the father I'm supposed to be? And he was tortured, and he knew he was tortured, and, and you know, he was, but he was functional. So, you know, like a functional alcoholic, sometimes it's even worse because if, you, if you're not functioning, you're broken, and you get, you get fixed. But he was good enough, or the devil allowed him to be successful enough that we had decades in our family where we had the head of our family being dysfunctional and broken. And it affected us. It affected all of us. And so in my 20s, you know, you go through the anger with your father and you're mad with him. And then in your 30s, you want to reconcile because you're like, hey, look, he's the only father I have and let's, let's figure it out. And as men, we kind of say we could bond as men. And I said, well, maybe if I was 20, because at that point he had two kids at 20 and I had kids at 30 in my 20s. I went through my immaturity phase. I said, maybe I could, I started to give him rationalize what and why he did certain things. And, I, and, and that helped for a year or two, but it, it didn't. And I, you know, I always used Dr. Phil. I tried to Dr. Phil my way out of it. And I thought, oh, if I, if I you know, Ayanla says you do this and Oprah says you do that. And I, I was trying because I wanted to shake it. I wanted to embrace him again and just move on. But I couldn't because he wasn't happy. He was still tortured. And my sister and I, we, we had the same experience. And so we would ask my dad, we'd say, you know, well, what was your family like growing up? What was it like? And he wouldn't answer. And he just said, we don't talk about that. And the Holy Spirit just this, I mean, on Friday, Thursday and Friday of this week, I looked at, he, had, he was one of six, but the five siblings he had, all of them had tortured lives, died tragically, lived very, very hard lives. And the word I got from the Holy Spirit was, this is just not his immaturity, that there was something more, that this is not about flesh and blood. This was something deeper. And, and when I was talking to Deacon Troy, and we weren't talking about my father, he was talking about generational curses. And I thought, that's a little bit too deep for me. But the Holy Spirit kept on saying, there's something here. And they're one of my dad's siblings, the oldest one, Sharon, and she's a Christian. And, you know, she's part of our life. She came to our wedding. So I said, and over the years, I've asked her because she knows the Lord. I said, Auntie Sharon, what happened? Why, why? And she looked at me and she said, no, we don't talk about that. That there is family shame. That the hope name had family shame and brokenness associated with it. And we won't talk about it. So hurtful that she wouldn't talk. So I said, you know, okay, well, you know. So going into this week, and the Holy Spirit was prodding me and prodding me, so I said, let me just pick up the phone and give her a call. This was on Friday, and I called her, and I said, Auntie Sharon, I'm speaking on Father's Day, and the Holy Spirit has told me that there may be something in our family that hasn't been discussed, and it might be a family curse that's been passed on. And I said, you don't have the answer now. I said, maybe on Saturday, when you have some time to pray about it, we can talk. And she said, let's talk now. And she unloaded. And there are things that I'm not going to share at the pulpit. But there was so much brokenness. Now, if you think about it, this was, they grew up in Harlem in the 60s, poor. And my, both my father and mother both had, excuse me, my grandfather and grandfather both had spiritual backgrounds. My dad's father was a minister, ordained minister, but was broken. And one of the things that she told me that we could share was that my grandfather on my dad's side, his father, one was in real estate, which is a little weird because I'm in real estate, he was in real estate, and I was like, oh Lord, you know, what does that mean now? I gotta switch careers? 
But she said that my dad, my grandfather's father was one of 13 children. So, and close friends of his, so you had 13, and close friends of my dad, my grandfather's father, didn't know he had any children. So you imagine you have 13 children, and nobody knows you have children. You need to say you're an absentee dad. And so as I thought about it, I thought, okay, so my grandfather's father wasn't around. And then she also shared that my grandfather's mother was institutionalized when my grandfather was four. So he had a father who wasn't around, a mother who was institutionalized. And I mean, in those days, they took you and they put you away. It wasn't like therapy, you're in and out. So they had 13 children, this is now in the 20s, right? Poor, no mother, no father. And I thought, my God. So my grandfather's father wasn't around, broken. My grandfather, who was an ordained minister, caused so much shame and, and pain in his family that my dad was broken, was depressed, substance abuse. Then my dad, to me, tormented our family, right, by his own brokenness, not intentional, but our own brokenness. And I thought, this is now, something's being passed down. And I said, I cannot do this to my son, right? And all the bike rides and all the ice cream and all the toys can't change what's, if there's something generationally that is in the soil, right? That is, that is poison, that is cursed. And so this is when the father's love, right? Because I was down. I was worried. I was at the men's retreat, and I pulled away from one of the meetings, and this started to all happen. And I said, my God, what am I going to do? And I heard the Holy Spirit say, you are loved, that the curse can end with you, right? That through the Father's love, he can cover all through the blood of the Lamb. And I declare today in my family that that curse is now broken, that shame is now broken. Amen? Amen. So today, I know I've said a lot, but what I wanted you to leave with is the love for the Father, that the Father's love, that that relationship with the Father will cure all. That if you have father's issues, right? And fathers, because we're so pivotal, we impact our children. We impact our wife or baby mamas, right? We impact so many people that if we don't have that foundation, if we don't embody those principles, then we can lead to devastating effects. But the good news is it's not too late. You say, well, I can't go back and be a father to my child. But Jesus can restore what the canker worm has taken away. That you can be restored but you have to claim it. You have to be willing to say and look and to dig and to follow the Holy Spirit. So I just say, I believe that through this message that I have been redeemed, that our family name, the Hope family name, no longer has to be cursed, that it ends today in the name of Jesus.